You're listening to Lady Radio, the hottest show this side of Dizzo. Hello and welcome to this episode 11 of Lave Radio, the show that covers the universe of Elite and the development of the computer game Elite 4, Elite Dangerous. I'm your host, second technician, Fozzer Forrester, and cozying up with me in the orange sidewinder of this episode are... Rumours of his demise have been greatly exaggerated, fresh from his sickbed, Chris Jarvis. Hello! Rumours of his demise have been spread by Scientologists all over the UK, John Stabler. Good evening. And finally, rumours about what he wears under his kilt are no concern of this show. His first time in the chair, fake Alan Stroud, Dave Hughes. Thank you, I think. Well, this week I think I could have to go with Virgins first. So, Dave, what have you been up to? Oh, not a lot, really. A bit of writing on the RPG, a bit of trying to design some stuff for the LaveCon, because I'm going to try and bring the miniatures rules with me, if I can get them done. And talking to you a lot. Oh, and um, ordering and receiving little tiny models of Vipers. Probably packaging up quite a few dice, I should imagine. Oh, there was that as well, yeah. Thanks for reminding me, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I have a, a car boot full of 300 dice at the moment, yeah. Just waiting for stamps. How much is it costing you in postage to send out these little uh, yeah, don't want pieces to ask. of uh, plastic joy? <laughs> you don't want to ask. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, after licking all of those envelopes, there's, surely there's a career in porn for you. <laughs> Well, I feel like I've got a bit of a camel's tongue at the moment, yeah. So. Moving on then. Don, what have you been up to? Just event organising this week. Work as usual, but event organising both, obviously. Um, I've been thinking of LaveCon a lot, but also some of my Skeptics events. Mr Jarvis, what have you been up to, sir? I've been trying to, uh, I guess, catch up with episode five of Escape Velocity, having been, as you say, stricken for most of last week. Yeah, it was kind of weird. It's a bit like, you know, like you sometimes feel that you suffer from these very modern diseases that have names that nobody really understands this was none of that this was a proper victorian headache and fever in bed with a you know bowl and a mop for the brow uh so i was i was suffering like it was 1895 um so then having kind of got my head clear it's just a case of back to the laptop and trying to get episode five of escape velocity done and uh so yeah it's been nice to get back into it yeah i was gonna say you're uh your fan base is actually getting quite vocal and quite restless for a new episode of uh, Escape Velocity. I know, death threats from Drew. <laughs> it's amazing how demanding people are for free stuff. <laughs> <laughs> Don't we know it? Um, okay, well, uh, from my side of things, uh, John, what you didn't mention is that you also uh, appeared on an episode of The Conclave, which was launched this week. Uh, which, oh, uh, I forgot. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Which went out and has been really well received, as has the interview with both uh, Darren Gray and uh, Kate Russell. Uh, Kate Russell, who uh, both came onto the show uh, last week and the week before. Um, so that was good to get those out. Uh, from a personal point of view, like everybody else on the show, it's just been crazy, crazy busy at work. And uh, yeah, not really leaving much time for anything else at the moment. I hate to say it, Foz, but you do realise that I plugged the Conclave on the last podcast. Yeah, but this, yeah, let, let's be so honest. I mean, you haven't, you trying to have a go at me. I actually plugged it on the last podcast, and the only reason you're mentioning it now is because it took you a while to edit. Yeah, well, it, yeah. I've got oh, he's up. speechless. Yes. 
Oh dear! No, the um, the conclave seems to be quite a tricky show to uh, to edit together. No disrespect to the people that are on it, but obviously it's t- it's a it's a show where everybody just basically talks for an hour and a half, similar to this one. I say all disrespect for John suggesting that uh, this show is an absolute breeze to edit. <laughs> yeah, it's <laughs> not. But yeah, so no, it was a little bit late going out. But the uh, the plan for the conclave stuff is to uh, get the stuff going out once a month. So uh, that factors in the fact that uh, I'm not quite as uh, rapid on the old editing suite as John is. So uh, that'll be that. So okay, shall we go on to the development news, of which there's been quite a bit since the last show? Okay, first off for this week on the development news, we've actually got a new section from uh, Mr. Ashley Barley. Ashley Barley obviously does the uh, feature request updates, which he has now brought to a close. And to replace them, he's now doing a section where you meet the team at Frontier. And his first feature this week is with a gentleman called Mark Allen, who's one of the senior programmers at Frontier. Now, we're not going to obviously read through the whole section, but if you are interested, then obviously go to the Frontier forums and check it out. Uh, but just a few things that we have picked out as we've been going through it. The first one, the answer to the question, when the shift ends, does Frontier use elite sounds to signal the end of the working day? And Mark replies, no, we don't, though I think we might now, due to the fact it's being suggested. When asked what is he currently working on, I'm not sure if he drops a little bit of a teaser here, but he says at the moment I'm adding an engine booster, brackets think afterburner in space. Now, guys, have we heard anything else about an afterburner in any of the uh, development news? No, I was thinking that I think this might stuck. be a bit of a, a bit of a, a teaser for us, or, or an accident. They weren't meant to reveal it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> a, a loose-tongued developer has been uh, <laughs> discussing. No, no, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, it makes me think of um, which one was it? Uh, Wing Commander had a little uh, afterburner, didn't it? That you could sort of tap for uh, used used up fuel a lot quicker, and then um, they gave you a bit of a boost to catch up with other ships. Yeah, and I can imagine the way that um, Elite are trying to do things at the moment. I can imagine the use of an afterburner is really going to sort of increase the amount of um, thermal en- energy you give off and how much you sort of light up to the, around, uh, the ships around you. So it's obviously not going to be something if you want to do stealth, but your heat signature, I'd imagine, with an afterburner is really going to increase. So it could be a bit of a trade-off between sort of capturing your prey nice and quickly as opposed to doing the, the old stealthy approach. I, I think it's more of a interception device more than anything else. So if you've got no problem with being spotted on the radar and you just want to catch somebody quick before they get somewhere, then that would be the option. I think it'll be interesting to see if there's a, a penalty for using it, though, because there was a similar thing put into Uli called the Querium Injector, um, which did the same thing. It was basically a, an afterburner, but obviously it, it used up your hyperspace fuel. Yeah, because given the detail that we've gone into on a lot of the stuff around things like in-system travel, uh, we haven't actually discussed fuel usage have we no we haven't not yet because i think that's one of the things that i found confusing i remember with frontier was was balancing the need for kind of in-system fuel with sort of discrete tons of fuel in the cargo hold for hyperspace travel because i remember getting a bit caught out when you would you know because not all the systems were slightly different sizes and i think if you went to one of these kind of complicated ternary or you know quaternary systems you could actually be dumped some 300 astronomical units from, mm. the, you know, from the nearest habitable system. And I actually found a lot of the ships just didn't have the fuel tank to fly from the edge of that system into the, uh, the, you know, the nearest settlement. So it'd be interesting to see how that works in the new, with the new proposals, how realistic they're going to make the kind of in-system fuel. Isn't it much the case that they're, going to, they're going towards the micro-jump system rather than using fuel to travel that's it but i think these afterburners imply imply that there is a certain amount of 
I know it's slightly different, but it does, you know, like you say, there'll need to be some trade-off for using the booster. Otherwise, you just have it on all the time. So it must be some sort of limited charge or... But I think this in-system, like, hyper speed, the way they'll probably do it is you'll use fuel while you're doing that. Yeah. I, I know they haven't decided on it exactly 100% whether it's got to be like, you know, you've got to have two known points or whether you can just use it in like a kind of a free mode. But either way, I think you you will have a fuel tank like you did in Frontier, which will tick down slowly over time the more you use it. And the booster will just increase that rate, I guess. Yeah. Okay, well, drawing the other two pieces of information that we found interesting out of this uh, interview, uh, the question, what programming languages are used for Elite Dangerous? And the answer is it's almost exclusively C++. For all the programming nerds out there, that would be of interest to you guys. Um, and finally, the question... Wait, 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 wait. You've, as, you're not a programmer, so you actually might have missed the most interesting part of this. Which is... Um, the interesting part of this is that they've said on other projects, we've also used a lot of Lua as well. Now, Lua is a scripting language, um, and it's been used in a lot of RPGs um, for things like macros. Now, I would imagine that they would write the game engine using C++, but they would use Lua for the um, the game's user interface, so it would be scripted. Um, and also, he mentioned that there's an open debate about that, and I think that that's because there's probably some people who are pushing for Lua, because that will allow easier integration, and, and you know, users can write their own like apps within the game mm. or their own macros if, if, if there's going to be complex things that need to be performed. So that, for me, is an interesting thing. It does open up a lot of possibilities because there are a lot of games use Lua for modding as well. So yeah. if, there's, if there's open debate to get that put in there, it could open the door for a lot of different things in the future as well. So hopefully the yeah. debate will say, yes, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, John, you're absolutely right. I did not understand that in the slightest. So <laughs> good job you are. That's why you've got me. <laughs> Um, and the other point from this was um, the question, is Elite Dangerous the most complex project you've worked on in your career? And his reply was quite uh, quite interesting. He says, uh, it's the most complex of the ones I'm actually allowed to talk about. But no, there are others that have been bigger technical challenges for me. And I don't know what you guys are thinking, but when I read that, I thought, yeah, I wonder if he's talking about the outsider, the frontier development game that seemed to get canned at a very late stage of development. It was sort of a third-person game. Yeah, it's interesting thing about The Outsider, because one of the things that stood out about that, if I'm remembering the right game, because it was a while ago, but wasn't there this thing that you were kind of a fugitive on the run and there would be sort of news feeds that dynamically reported your progress and yes. things you were doing? Which is quite interesting, because obviously some of the stuff I've been talking about with Elite Dangerous is this idea of these dynamic news feeds. And I hadn't really thought about it before, but it would be interesting to know sort of what lessons they learned from The Outsider that would sort of feed into how that whole generated media works in uh, Elite. Well, also the simple fact that if you if you saw The Outsider, it was obviously a third-person game, so it does make you wonder whether or not when we're talking about you know, walking around in ships and walking around on stations and stuff, how much of the uh, the engine is already completed you know, from that project that they're just going to be able to, uh, to port across in some way to you know, the Elite Dangerous universe. Well, you've, you've mm. kind of touched on something that goes on inside my head quite a lot since the start of all this, which is if, if they've already written a third-person game where you, it's pretty much a sandbox game, then how come it's going to take so long to put such a thing into Elite? Because surely most of the code should be there. Obviously, it'll take a certain amount of time to port it over and make it compatible with Elite's code, but you know the, the, the basis is there. So I think the problem is the problem is scaling. I mean, I've worked 
on odd little game ideas in the past. And, uh, you know, as I, as I mentioned, I think in a previous podcast, this idea of taking a ship and actually flying from the point where the planet is a kind of ball in front of you to flying all the way down to it being a kind of populated service of surface. That is a, you know, that is a huge transition if you think about just how big a world is. And I think, you know, I'd go so far as to say that traditionally space games and games involving a, a kind of a ground and buildings were written using very different kinds of engines. So I think to combine the two, I don't think it's doing one or the other. I think, you know, as you say, they've probably got the tools there for doing third-person adventuring. I think it's the, the seamlessness of how you go from one to the other that's probably going to cause the most headaches. I was thinking about that as well at one point. And, yeah, that's a good point. One thing I was thinking was you only have to generate the information and the, and the visual data for an area where the player is. What a lot of people seem to be thinking about it as is one, like if you're on a planet, if you go from orbit into a planet then you're on a globe and i think that's the way that people are envisioning it is that this globe must exist and it must be generated in one big go but it doesn't have to be it could be generated visually as a globe but then each part of that globe only needs to get generated for anybody who's there so it's never all generated in one go so oh, yeah totally um, yeah absolutely i mean you're talking about yeah you're talking about sort of engine optimization and that's obviously pretty much yeah, yeah yeah that's something i'm sure they'll be looking at but um it's still quite if you want to use buzzwords for it. Going back to the point that John mentioned, actually, about the whole Lua thing, which uh, I didn't understand, but now that I do, thanks to you, John, looking at the end of this, there's actually a bit about um, you know his history in terms of uh, what he's done in the past, and Mark's actually spent quite a lot of time modding uh, quite a lot of games. It's what got him uh, interested in computer games in the first place. And just looking down the list of some of the stuff that he's uh, he's modded, Warcraft 3, Star Trek Bridge Commander, Homeworld Freelancer, Supreme Commander... It probably means that uh, if you wanted someone on your side about Lyra and about uh, getting some development kits out to the community so they can make their own mods for the game in terms of um, apps and things like that to help you play, then uh, it sounds like he might be the guy to, uh, to fight your argument for you. Well, yeah, and I mean, and the beauty of Lua, of course, is that you don't need to give everyone like a development kit. All you, all you need is a wiki with some of the documentation on, on like the game object model. Um, and as long as they know the basics of the scripting language, you know, people can write brilliant macros. Okay, well, I think we'll leave that one there. It looks like it's going to be quite an interesting feature. I know next week he's going to focus on a concept designer, the guy that's actually be doing all of the, well, most of the concept art for uh, all the stuff that we've seen so far. So it'll be quite an interesting interview next week as well. Right, we'll leave that there and go straight into the DDF. The first section this week of the DDF is traders. John, I believe you've been reading into this. With uh, with trade the trading role, we've obviously discussed trading as a as a kind of a universal concept within the game. So there's not actually a lot of news really, you know, that that jumps out of you. I think the main one is that they've kind of re- reiterated this requirement for escorts to ensure safe travel through some of the more dangerous and profitable systems. Because it's it was quite a good idea to, you know, just throw out there, I guess, during, you know, the Kickstarter and during development. But to actually see it, you know, reiterated again, it makes me think that, you know, they're putting a lot more thought into it. And so that, you know, if you really do want to make a lot of money, you will need to have at least, you know, make some friends, I guess, which which I love because it means that it makes you engage with the multiplayer aspect of the game. 
but apart from that, yeah, it's just all about um, how you're going to perhaps um, customize your ship differently compared to, say, a bounty, bounty hunter or a pirate or an explorer. Um, so you're going to need like a fast-charging hyperdrive because you are going to be jumping around a lot more. Um, you're not necessarily going to be staying in one system for a while. Again, there's this kind of emphasis on escape rather than fighting, um, which I guess makes sense if, if you're a trader. Why, why would you want to hang around when you can just disappear? And also kind of defensive measures such as mines rather than lasers. So that was what I took away from it. Apart from that, I, I think it was pretty obvious. It's very similar to previous games. There's an interesting point in there about you know selling goods to major importers um, to maximise the chance of a good profit. And it does make me wonder whether or not, you know, you'll just have this concept like you had in previous games of a sales point, like a computer with a stock mark on stock market on it, and you just sell to the price that's kind of listed, or whether there will actually be, you know, within their area of, of fleshing out the NPCs, whether there'll actually be multiple customers at one port who might be offering you different prices for the stuff that you're carrying. It'd be interesting to see if the kind of the competition in the market is such that you can actually, you know, have different people that you sell to. And maybe bound down to your reputation or other factors, you know, maybe there will be modifiers that give you different prices for different people depending on your relationship with them. That's a good idea. Yeah, I could see how that would work. Um, but <laughs> but you're talking about that being based on your reputation as opposed to being part of some sort of haggle mini game. Oh, that would be awful. <laughs> You know what I mean? That'd be, that'd be, that'd be really appalling. Um, I was sorry, I hated that in Frontier. I'd like some more money. Okay. Um, sorry, that's me being, uh, speaking my mind. But no, I mean, no, I mean, just things like um, I don't know. I don't know what sort of things would would influence it. But like, so if you had a um, like a bad reputation with a particular faction, um, for instance, if you're known, if you've got record for someone who deals in stolen goods, they might offer you less for your stuff because they don't know if it's stolen or not. Whereas if you've got like a really clean trading record and your, you know, your elite ranking for being a trader is higher, you know, maybe they pay slightly, you know, more top dollar because they know that you'll have been looking after the stuff. And Yeah, no, I think it makes perfect sense. Yeah. Um, it also possibly encourages, I mean, it's not something that's come up very much so far in discussions, but obviously there's going to be corpse in the game. Now, I wonder if there's going to be sort of corporations where you can build up your, you know, your relationship with them. And if they are buying on the market, then there's an incentive for you to continue going back and building a bit of brand loyalty or a bit of loyalty between yourself and that particular corporation. As your reputation with them increases, then maybe the prices that they offer for you would also increase. Totally. And maybe they even, if your relationship with a particular corporation is good enough, they actually put out a comms and say this is what we're buying at the moment. Can you get it for us? Yeah, like a contract. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great idea, actually. could really see that working. John, anything to add? Well, yeah, just to add on to that bit there, that um, you know, it's perfectly reasonable to assume that if they're increasing the types of missions that are going to be available, you know, there's no reason why you can't just have special missions saying just go to this particular system and buy this particular good and, and bring it back here just as a, as a way of you know getting people into the game easy missions to give people money things things like that i was looking at the um the taking risk on lucrative circumstances and events section about obviously checking out the planets that you're going to and find out what they need rather than what they what you want them to have and i, I think that's, that's a big big part of it i think because that could give quite a lot of immersion in, into the game 
and make a trade make a trader's life quite interesting. In fact, if you could sit there and you could maybe look at the the situation on the planet and find out if there's a war going to start, and then you'll know what sort of supplies they'll need for that planet in the next few months. And you can maybe even corner a market there. And going on to what um, was been said before there about getting a contract. I mean, if you can get a contract for that kind of thing, that could give you that could you know it could be quite an interesting thing to do. The other thing I would I would mention as well is I've been having a look through the the DDFs conversation at the moment and one of the interesting things that's coming up on there they're talking at the moment about how your cargo actually goes into the cargo bay and the fact that frontier are, are putting quite a lot of time and effort into the des- designing the cargo base themselves and they're saying that if you're going to have the jets and stuff or if you have an explosion in your cargo bay then certain bits of cargo might end up outside depending on where they are in the cargo bay which is a lot more detailed than i was expecting there to be in this kind of idea so it seems any more uh any more expanded than the uh previous iterations that we've seen of uh life as a trader but interesting what you said there about um, explosions and things disappearing out of your cargo bay because that leads us on quite nicely to the other topic in the ddf at the moment which is the role of pirates just having a look down here some of the things that they're suggesting as key characteristics of pirates they make profit from selling cargo taken surrendered to them or taken by force they choose their targets without regard of any authority and so lead a dangerous life of an outlaw now, this is the bit that I thought was quite interesting. They don't necessarily want to destroy their prey. They want to relieve it of its cargo as efficiently as possible. The idea is that uh, it's actually better for a pirate not to destroy their prey because a destroyed ship means destroyed cargo. Obviously, in previous games, you know, you got shot, your ship blew up, and anything that you were carrying got left behind. What they're suggesting here is actually all you really want to be able to do as a pirate is blow open the cargo hold and take as much of the stuff out of it as possible, which is a, a slightly different dynamic to what we've had in previous games. It is quite interesting in the fact, are they going to introduce some kind of targeting system that's going to allow you to target certain areas of a ship, or are they going to give you non-lethal weaponry to do that with? Yeah, and I think, you, as you said, it's all about weaponry. Um, for instance, if you're going to be a bounty hunter where you earn your money destroying pirates, or if you're going to be an assassin you're going to want to take down and destroy ships as fast as possible because all you want to do is kill them. Whereas pirates want to use some type of weapon that is going to uh, immobilize a ship and leave it you know, a sitting duck so that they can just go and grab whatever they want. Or, uh, as you said, just get the pilot to um, disappear in their escape pod and then they can just take all the goodies. Well, they also said as well, I mean, you say disappear in your escape pod, but being a skilled pirate means that being skilled in technical combat, a destroyed target means less booty and more interest from the law, uh, which is true. Obviously, the, the bounty on your head is going to go up a lot higher if you actually destroy a ship as opposed to just damage it. And if you're going to try and stake out a career as a pirate, you want your bounties to be as low as possible. Yeah, sure, sure. But what I mean, make them escape in their escape pod is if their ship's completely immobilized and it's not going anywhere, they may just feel that the best option is just to bail out and go start again, leaving their ship just floating in space. If you look at piracy historically, there's potential in there for sort of negotiating with a target and saying, well, look, you can give me half of it without a fight or I can shoot you and take all of it. And there's that kind of, you know, do you know what I mean? There's that kind of bluffing game of do I think this person can kind of take me out and steal all my cargo or are they going to levy like a massive amount of it but I'll still get away with some and my ship won't get blown up? I was going to say in EVE Online that's definitely something that happened and because I'm uh, I'm not the world's best EVE Online player um, it's something that happened to me quite a few times where you'd get sort of uh, snagged in a 
in a stasis field and you know for a fact there's no way you're going to be able to beat the other guy. And they said, you know, if you pay me this ridiculous amount of uh, isk or money in the game, uh, then I'll let you go. And you're just sitting there thinking, okay, now either he's a nice guy or he's a complete twat. And I could give him the money and he might let me go. Or realistically, I'm going to give him this money. Then he's going to blow me up and then he's going to laugh at me down the comms. So I'm not sure if that's the sort of thing that I really want in Elite Dangerous, <laughs> to relive that whole experience in my favourite game of all time. Yeah, there's something similar being discussed on the on the DDF about that as well. As the fact, and I apologise to the DDF member who posted this because I can't remember the name, but they'd mention that the fact they don't want the piracy becoming a protection racket, um, which if it goes down that road is quite possibly what it could become. There's interesting stuff in here as well about pirates potentially having the skill to launder stolen goods because we've read previously you know with the crime proposal stuff about how goods are kind of marked as stolen you know if you blow up a ship and pick them up those goods are tagged as being stolen property and it implies that actually if you've gone up a certain level as a pirate you know down the sort of elite tree um that you might actually have technology or skills to enable you to clean goods um which means you could sell them you know wherever you like and just going off that as well, um, there's also mention here that uh, they need some way to actually carry this cargo they're going to be nicking. If they've kitted out their ship for weapons, which any good pirate would need to do, they're going to be sacrificing quite a bit of cargo space. So I guess the best and most efficient way of being a pirate is to actually do it, first of all, as a team. Yeah. So you can take down bigger targets. But also you can actually have somebody who's not necessarily um, armed like a pirate, but who is actually going to be the person scooping up all the gear. Um, and then carrying it back to, you know, the pirate um, market. Well, it's, it's another thing that no one's really actually thought about yet, and I've, I've not seen it mentioned anywhere, is what about actually piracy for the sake of stealing a ship rather than its cargo? How does a pirate build a pirate fleet? Well, that's what I was going to mention when John said, you know, this uh, this idea of getting someone to, to jettison out of their, their ship in an escape pod and leave the ship behind. Now, wouldn't it be great? We, we know that there's the potential of selling ships as commodities, but you know, is there potential to either board that ship uh, or maybe bring it under tow and then sell it as an ongoing commodity. I mean, what do we reckon? I mean, is it something that they're going to do later on where you can have boarding parties and you can go from ship to ship? What would we like to see? Well, they mentioned this once before about doing boarding parties and they say it's a possibility for the future. I can't remember mm. where I said that. or who. I think it was, it may have been Michael or Ashley that said it, that it is a possibility. And I think it's a really good idea because it would be awesome to you to coin a phrase. I think at the moment, I think taking a ship under tow should be a possibility in the, in the, in the first release. Yeah, but maybe it's sort of something that's actually really uh, quite difficult to do in terms of obviously the, the sacrifice on manoeuvrability and everything else. So maybe it's the sort of thing that you could only do if you were a pirate fleet. And so almost like capturing flag, you have to, you know, if you're capturing a ship, you have to bring it back under tow and you have to have lots of people around you to protect that uh, cargo. Just going back to that point that you raised there, John, in terms of, you know, if you're going to sacrifice weapons for cargo space, I suppose the other way around, if you really did want to be a solo pirate is to have some sort of scanning mechanism where you could automatically figure out of the stuff that's been dropped what's the most valuable to you and like an automatic scanner so you you know to leave the food behind but the the precious gems Mm. should be your first scoop yeah, that's quite interesting, actually, because in previous games, when you saw stuff floating around in space, because it was a single-player game, it didn't really matter. You could just hit a button, you could turn the labels on, yeah. yeah. so you could actually see what the stuff was. 
Now, obviously, I would hope that in this game that they wouldn't just give away such valuable technology. That it would be it would be a pirate gizmo that you would you would want to see what's floating around in space rather than scooping up you know fertilizer and stuff like that. And just to just to tack on to what you said about um, the player having to decide how much space to leave, you know, with weapons and, and storage. Again, it's it's going to be um, and this might split some opinion. Because what it's doing is it's basically saying that if you want to be a really efficient pirate, you need to operate as a, as a team. Like a single pirate is a disadvantage, really, because it's just a single person. As soon as you got two or three pirates, they're so much more efficient just because of the just because of the fact that there is more of them. They're able to do something that a single player can't do, and that's haul the stuff off in a specialist ship. But John, surely you're not talking about a pirate gank? Not well. Again, you know, this is all very subjective stuff and, you know, what one person calls a gank, I would call clever play and good teamwork. I think the economics will balance it, though, because if you think about it, if a trader is able to make enough money on a trade run to be a decent living for one person or, you know, a decent reward for one player, the more pirates it takes to, to rob that player, the less profit they have to split between them. So I think it, there, there is a certain amount of balance. I mean, there is absolutely no point six of you taking on a single Cobra Mark III because it just doesn't carry that much stuff. No, sure, but I mean, the six people will be, they'll be a big team because they want to be able to take down the bigger targets. So you'll be looking at exactly. ships that are doing long-distance hauls of very large amounts of goods. And because it's a long haul, you know there's a lot of profit in it, so it is actually worth you ganging up. Okay, well, we'll leave that section there for now. And move on to some of the DDF subjects that's actually just gone through revisions at the moment. Uh, the first one is communications within the game. So not a lot's changed in this one apart from they have added some visual communication, uh, which is players can apply directive visual tags to ships that they have targeted that can then be seen by other players. These tags can convey the following messages. Attack this ship stroke station, defend this st- ship stroke station, or scan this ship. Which is quite interesting, actually, because that really does sort of talk to the fact that, you know, you're going to play this in a cooperative sort of way and allows you to very quickly and easily communicate with your fellow team members to, uh, to organize an attack or escort mission, for example. It also brings NPCs into the mix. We've talked previously about how it's nice to have tools which mean that, you know, you don't treat other players or NPCs differently, whether it's because of bounties or whether it's because of, you know, hiring armed escort. And actually, these are the sorts of things that in a game, you know, when you have kind of AI buddies, these are the sorts of things that you use to command a squad. I'm thinking of something like a swap four, if anybody played that, uh, you would be able to give, you you would go in as a team of sort of five SWAT cops or whatever, uh, and you would have tags like these that you could assign to the other sort of units that you had under your control. And it kind of works both ways, because in a situation where you're playing with AI, it becomes orders, and in a situation where you're playing with other players, it becomes markers so that they know how to coordinate with you. So it's very clever design, really. Yeah, absolutely. And obviously, it uh, also helps even if you're on voice comms with your team as well, just to you know, give a visual cue and people say, you know, attack this target and it appears on their screen as well. I think it's quite a cool way of doing it. Not everybody likes voice comms. Not everyone's interested in doing it. So it does give people another way to function as a team. And just to reiterate, you know, if you've got if you've got this kind of level of communication, then it really allows you to devolve, you know, responsibilities. And so you can have more 
specialist roles. So, for instance, if you're operating um, in the long term as a group, only one of you needs a certain type of scanner um, or a certain type of um, gizmo to do something because people can just ask you to, to use it. One of your teammates will say, hey, check this out. Can you just scan this for me? You do it, and then you can share the results with them. It's What it's doing is it's rewarding team play. I wonder if you'll be able to cheat it. I wonder if it as a, as a group, so the other players will declare themselves hostile, and then you declare yourself a friend to the target. And then once the target is destroyed, you as a friend can pick up the stuff um, without it being marked as stolen goods. I think the whole you can pick up your dead friend's goods requires their permission. You know, you've got to That's form. a grouping thing, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's a grouping thing. So unless you actually talk them into allowing you into their group, um, I can't see it happening. And right. there's, it's not just um, groups. I don't think it is just simple groups. It's this, t- this concept of a long-term alliance. There was a distinction made between a temporary group where you would get together to do something and an alliance, which would be kind of similar to like a guild. And it was the alliance that conferred the ability to go and pick up your friend's gear, I think. Right. So which one was it that also conferred the uh, the sort of the joint responsibility for any sort of heinous acts that you performed? Was that alliance or was that That's a group? group? That's group. Yeah, so if you created acts of piracy, it's, yeah, okay, fine. One of the things I was looking at on it was the that one of the changes has been to say that no response to an NPC will also be taken as a message, and that could have some interesting connotations. Like if you don't if you don't reply, will they get increasingly hostile towards you? Everything else I was going to say was is kind of covered there because I think the communications thing has been fairly fairly well sewn up. There's quite a lot in there. I'm just looking forward to seeing what the player to NPC conversations are going to be like and how is it going to be immersive or is it going to just seem like you're talking to a very simple computer like it was in Frontier. It will be interesting to see what sort of level of sort of dynamic dialogue you get from the game. I would imagine with it all being sort of text scripts and stuff, it is going to be quite standardized in terms of what communications uh, you get from the NPCs. And in some respects, that's almost, I know I like that about Frontier because it was standard messages, which suggests to me that even though the pilot of the other ship might want to say something, you've got a standard sort of hailing message like a standard greeting or a standard sort of an SOS or something like that, which actually for me felt more immersive, even though it was the same thing time after time after time. I think if you try and go too far the other way so that you have dynamic dialogue, you're more likely to see repetition in that. And that, I think, would feel more jarring than just having the basic sort of uh, the basic standard messaging. That's right. I mean, it's, it's the two extremes, isn't it? I mean, if, if you've got the, the really complicated way of doing it, it would be the harder way to do it. And it would, to try and make it dynamic and immersive and infallible is going to be really, really difficult. And it, it's either got to be done exactly right or it would be completely wrong. But the, the simple way, the preset messages, I think if there could be an, in, an in-game story to explain that, like because of all the different language barriers in different systems, for example, then they've used a standardised communication method. And I think that would be a nice obfuscation of what's going on in the background and free them up to do other things with the programme. That's interesting, actually, and maybe something we'll come on to a little bit later down the line, but um, in case you can give us a quick answer, Dave, has there been any discussion in terms of the writers' forums about what the language of the elite universe is going to be? Are there lots of different languages, or because we've all come from Earth, have we got you know the same sort of you know, language standard? Now, as you're saying that, I think, I'm pretty sure Michael Brooks has said something along these lines at one point, and I may be misquoting here, so I'm sure if Michael hears this, he'll shout at me at some point, that there's a galactic standard language um, there are regional languages. Each planet may have its own dialects and so on. But in the galaxy, there is actually a standard. The theory is that it's English, um, <laughs> because, we're, because we're all English. 
it's an English game, so it's an English language. But yeah, as, as, as I say, that might be wrong. That might have been a very early thing that I've picked up. So honestly, even if the universal language isn't English, you can just stand and shout louder in English. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and most aliens will understand you. The Thargoids got it eventually, so you know, it seems to work. <laughs> okay, leaving the DDF there for this week, uh, we'll move straight on to the Dev Diary. And obviously the most important news coming out of this week's Dev Diary is the fact that David Braben has decided it is summer and so will no longer be appearing in jumpers and will be seen in T-shirts and shirts going forward. He's, I like the fact that he's a man after my own heart, that he's decided that it's summer by wearing a black high-necked shirt. That's, that's exactly how I celebrate summer. <laughs> well, I suppose the other interesting parts that uh, has been discussed a bit on the forums is the fact that uh, they made the announcement to the backers that they've also been in discussions with some further uh, investors who have provided Frontier Development with some more funds for the ongoing support and expansion of the Elite Dangerous universe. Again, this is sort of slightly polarizing for some people. Some people seem to think that um, there was enough money in the pot from the Kickstarter to do everything that we could possibly want with, with this game. And the reason that the Kickstarter was so good is that you didn't have any other sort of publishers or any other interested parties apart from Frontier Developments to sort of have any further influence on how the game is actually being created. From what Frontier Developments have said, are we concerned that these people have come in with some more money? Are we concerned about any sort of ex- extra influence they're going to have over Frontier Developments? I think it's too early to tell what's going to happen. I think from what has been said in the conversation so far, it's not something that's going to affect the development as such. It's to make sure that the future of the game's in set in stone, that it's not going to just get released and then be around for a couple of years and then die. So it may be geared more towards future developments and server costs and online things and like backup servers and so on. And they're in a very different position because if you're trying to make a game or if you're trying to make whatever you're going to make and you're going to somebody cap in hand and saying, will you please give me money so that I can go and make this thing, you're in a very different position to what Frontier are now in, which is we've got our funding to make this game. This is what we're doing. Do you want to buy into it? And I think that's a very different position to negotiate from. Yeah. And, you know, I think it gives it gives other people a, a chance to buy into it and, you know, help it with investment and also receive something back rather than being this person sitting there, you know, like Dragon's Den with your pile of money on a table in front of you saying, you know, dance for me, little bitch. What are you going to do for my money? <laughs> Exactly which episode of Dragon's Den was that in, Jarvis? <laughs> it's some of them. <laughs> John, I'm sure it, you've got it an is opinion though, on isn't this. It? it is, though, isn't it? I mean, they've got all this money, and they're sitting, it, they're sitting there with it in a pile of notes on a table in front of them. I mean, really? Come on, what is that? Because, I mean, what do they do? Do they, have to, do they then take it back to the bank and then pay it back in and then get it back out for the next episode? Or do they just don't leave it on the table or carry it around with them? It's a paper prop. Move on. <laughs> oh, sarcasm's wasted on you, isn't it? Um, well, this is, this is a real conclave um, kind of question, but I think that's because there's a lot of debate in it, but it's purely debate around speculation, that we don't know who they are or you know what their involvement is. I think the way that it was phrased, I mean, David Braben even read off a piece of paper because he wanted to make sure he was quite clear in what he said. So, I mean, making a game I and... Mean, They've got a million quid, basically, uh, plus a bit of change for a Mac version. That's not a lot of money for a game, really. 
and I think they they originally they were just hoping well we'll just deliver on what we promise and then hopefully we'll get some sales. An injection of cash like this gives them a bit more room to be more creative because they've got more of a safety zone. They can spend a bit more, they can expand the team. And also the great thing about having more cash in your pocket is if you suddenly realize that you're running behind time, you can just go and hire a schedule more developers. So um, I suppose it might make me revise my prediction on whether the game will be um, delivered on time or not. Apart from that, you know, all these people talking about, is it going to, you know, are they going to have a hand in the game? Are they going to spoil it? It's it's just all speculation. And, and until it's revealed who the people are that are investing, I think speculation on it is kind of pointless. Okay, John, well, you, mean, you mentioned there about the fact that it was obviously quite a, a scripted um, announcement. So maybe we should actually, for those people that haven't watched the video, uh, just read it out uh, verbatim, which is, I'd like to talk about some exciting things that are going on here as backers of Elite Dangerous, we want you to be the first to hear the news that will directly benefit the game. As you know, we've always planned to spend much more on Elite Dangerous than was raised by the Kickstarter campaign. While we already had this cash, we're looking to the future, to other platforms, and to where do we go after the game is released. So to support our future plans, we have taken some investment from a range of high-caliber investors who share our vision in wanting to help us make Elite Dangerous and the tech and tools behind it everything it can and should be. So just from reading that out, obviously the the suggestion that we're looking to other platforms uh, is quite an interesting one. Now, I know I'm probably going to be classed as uh, the devil incarnate, but I don't think when they say other platforms, they're talking about Linux. Obviously, this week's (laughs) been very busy, (laughs) very busy in terms of um, the Xbox One being announced and also the PlayStation 4 being announced. Do we think this is something that... um, Frontier developments are looking at with one eye and saying, you know, obviously it's going to be successful for the PC and Mac. You know, maybe we want to do something like um, CCP uh, with EVE Online have done and try and marry uh, a computer game with a console game and have one persistent universe. Well, I think your jibe at Linux may be a little bit misguided because if they are considering porting to things like the PS4, which is actually an 86-based processor porting to Linux would be a breeze. And in fact, um, it wouldn't surprise me if the PS4 is actually running a Linux operating system. Uh, So I don't think that's going to be a problem. And I'm glad that they're looking at other platforms um, because that means that they are really considering, you know, future-proofing this game. And of course... If they're gonna, if the game's gonna be as beautiful as we think it's gonna be, it's not gonna run on the current generation of consoles. It is gonna run on the next gen. Yeah, and I don't think we'd be looking at a companion game like CCP did with uh, Dust. I think you'd be looking at just a console version of Elite Dangerous. Now, is that? I mean, you guys know more about this stuff than I do, but is that easier or more difficult because we're going uh, peer to peer as opposed to having like a, a single server platform? Well, I think that's where, as John said, I mean, if you look at the sort of architecture of the PS4, no reason why you couldn't implement that same peer-to-peer model on the PlayStation. I mean, it's, uh, in fact, if anything, it's, you know, I, I suppose I'd argue that it's slightly easier because on a dedicated console, you've kind of got a known factor in terms of what other systems in the background are using your network capacity. Whereas if you're talking about like a desktop PC, you could have all kinds of stuff going on uh, that you have to kind of share your network resources with. Speculating massively, but... I don't think it would make all that much difference. And I wonder if, you know, if, if, if this were to be the timing of them talking about doing, you know, m- maybe more console-based versions of the game, it might be because that architecture of the new machines is a slightly more known quantity now. Okay, but again, you guys know more about this than, uh, than I do, but can we see a future where computer 
players will also be playing against <laughs> console players? Is that possible? Uh, it, it, it technically is possible. Um, I can't. I don't think I can actually name names just in case, but. I interviewed some games developers at E3 a couple of years ago, and they were bringing out a game which was on the PC, and it was on the 360, and it was on the PS3. And the question I asked them was, is why can't you have, in your kind of online servers, why can't you be just playing with other players, regardless of which system you're playing your game on? And they said, you can, all the code is working, Um, it's for legal reasons that these companies don't allow us to set players against each other on different platforms. Interesting. So actually, it's a bureaucratic issue, not a technology issue, which is a real, real pity. With uh, the 360, though, um, the Microsoft limited it to the way their servers worked. The session-based system was limited to 32 players. So there was an issue there. I mean, everything was hosted by Microsoft in, in what was an early version of their cloud. With PC game developers, obviously the developer of the game is the one who will put the server infrastructure into place so it's more you know, spread around. We all know that the new um, Xbox console is going to be locked down and DRM'd and completely screwed with, so I've almost written that whole entire console off. But with the PS4, there is hope that you could get PlayStation 4 players against PC players. But what would happen then is that kind of implies that um, you can play the game with a controller only and that you won't need a keyboard. And I think that in itself is would be quite an interesting topic. You can get keyboards and stuff for the consoles now as well, though. So sure, really... but not everyone bothers. You know, everyone with a PC's got a keyboard, but not everybody with a console's got a keyboard. Um, and also, if you said to somebody, you know, most console players, oh, if you want to play this game, you're gonna have to buy a keyboard as well. They'd probably go, well, I bought a console because I wanted to play games on controllers. There is actually a big difference between console players and PC gamers. Yeah, I think there's certainly be the expectation that if you bought the game on console, you would be expecting to be able to take it home and play it completely from the controller. Exactly, yeah. Oh, interesting. Watch this space. I'm sure, obviously, before this development run is through, we'll have more information as to what other, what other formats they're hoping to, uh, to release it on uh, later down the line. Okay, well, we'll leave that bit of the dev diary and go on to um, the next section, which is about the giant ships, giant warships uh, that we've seen quite a lot of in terms of the concept art. Uh, we've certainly seen the uh, Imperial cruisers and Federation cruisers. Uh, David was suggesting that, obviously, we know we were able to dock with these ships, but he sees these as more like floating embassies. What do you guys think of that? Perhaps the elite get invited to uh, posh soirees at the, uh, the captain's table. And people serving uh, Ferrero Rocher and stuff like that. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. And we could even, you know, get in a quick game of Captain's Daughter. <laughs> Dave, what do you think about this in terms of, obviously, the fiction side of things and the immersiveness of the universe? Oh, it's certainly an interesting thing to contemplate. I mean, I know that the Imperial ships have this circular bit on them, so there's some artificial gravity in there for the, the posh people. But I've not seen an equivalent in any of the art for the Federation ships. And do we think that could be part of the, the difference in cultures between the, the Imperials and the Federation? Obviously, we know the Federation's far more sort of, you know, utilitarian and, and workmanlike, and the Imperials are much more about the sort of the flamboyant aspect. So you could see the Imperials throwing these big cocktail parties, these big soirees, these big sort of embassy balls, but maybe not happening so much on the, uh, the Federation ships. That's the impression I get from a lot of the stuff that's been said around the forum as well. 
the Empire always seems to be more ostentatious and they're happy to take the ships out in the space and pretend that they're little embassies and the Federation just puts ships out there to try and keep everyone to behave, basically. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a big cultural thing. It's, it's another difference in the cultures between the, all the different societies out there and I think it's, I think it's really going to be good for the writing because it's going to give whoever's going to be dealing with certain aspects of the culture is going to have to, well, not going to have to, but it's going to be able to deal with all these different designs and ships and philosophies and all that. It's just, I think it's just brilliant. Well, the, the big ships and the, and the fleets are something that we'll revisit when it comes to the newsletter. But uh, moving on to the next part of the Dev Diary, questions from the forum. Uh, well, the first question was, you know, are planets going to rotate and orbit relative to their sun? Uh, the answer is yes, but they will orbit in real time, so very, very slowly. That was one of the best things for me about Frontier. It was just the, you know, sitting on a, a space station or sitting on a planet and just speeding up time and watching the uh, the orbit go around. And you had the, the, the night and day. And the, is it the Illuminator? What's the word where you, you can see the, the change from night to day? Terminator. The Terminator. A bit more Rani Swartz. So you could see the Terminator as it approaches or goes across a planet. Obviously, with um, Elite Dangerous being as pretty as it's going to be, yeah, this is something that I was really, really looking forward to. So the fact that you're going to be able to see them orbit and rotate relative to their sun, I think that's going to be an, a, a great piece of uh, immersion and a great bit of realism for the galaxy. It's going to be screenshot-tastic. Well, it's funny you mention that because when they do bring in this this idea of having your avatar and this third-person thing and people are walking around, when that does happen, you've got the scope for some crazy levels of machine anima, haven't you? Oh, yeah. You're going to have space, and you're going to have ships, and you're going to have all this beauty in the galaxy, and then mix that in, obviously, with avatars and characters. I mean, you won't need to, um, you won't need any other game to, to do stuff like that, will you? Obviously, as long as you like the sci-fi genre. <laughs> well, I mean, you say that, but I know I've mentioned it on the podcast before, but if you haven't seen the, uh, the animations called Clear Skies... Uh, which were made using, um, partly made using EVE Online and partly made using the Half-Life engine. Uh, it really shows what you can actually do with these tools. So rather than having to use one engine from one and one engine from another, potentially further down the line, Elite Dangerous could just be the platform to create all these fantastic animations and you know, great stories. And how fantastic would that be on YouTube if you know, Elite Dangerous was the universe of choice to go and create your, uh, you know, your sci-fi tale? Well, it's something they could aim towards. I mean, not deliberately at first, hopefully, but it could be one of the things on the horizon that they could market the game for. Indeed. And, and I suppose the other thing I would be interested in is if they would have an inbuilt movie maker rather than you having to use screen cap software. That would be pretty awesome. In fact, that would actually add, you know, um, that would aid in creating your own um, animations and things like that. If you could, you know, record the positions of ships. And, and what they're doing, and then play it back at a later date. In fact, that would be great. You have a battle, and you want to tell your mates about that great battle you had last night, send them the movie. All that data gets captured in packets anyway, so why not? Having, sorry, having been involved in making Machinima in the past, I think you possibly won't get necessarily quite as much out of this as you'd want. I mean, you know, we've talked in the past about how Elite needs to kind of stay very focused to its core gameplay in order to to kind of get complete. And having made Machinima in the past, one of the things that you lack very often in these animation environments is the ability to get good performances out of your 3D avatars. And it requires quite a lot of programming and quite a lot of very specific tools to not only give you a character that you can walk around a spaceship in third person, but even just 
for that character to be able to do things like just turn their head and look in a different direction or gesture with their hands. Because these are going to be things you aren't going to need for elite gameplay, um, but which are absolutely vital for making successful machinima. This is, you know, the ca- the case where you know good animators can can do miracles with what they've got. I mean, for instance, all of the animation that's been done with like things like World of Warcraft. I mean, all the characters do uh, they've got a set um, number of animations such, such as shouting or dancing, and just by stringing them together and I suppose editing it in a clever way, they can get some really good results out of it. And this is where modding would potentially come in. That's it. I was just going to say that. That's where the scripting engine would come into it. Um, yeah, when Mark Allen was talking about the, the, the Lua possibilities and the fact that he does some modern, I mean, if he knows that kind of stuff already, then that might be something that he could be in a very, very good position to put into the game. He knows kind of what to expect. Okay, so the next question was from Slorkin Berkius, where he was asking if there would be any intrusive loading screens when docking with space stations. David obviously said, no, absolutely not. It's going to be seamless from the point of space down to the point of um, landing your ship. Actually, was a bit upset about that because one of my favourite bits about Frontier and Elite was obviously being, you know, once you've docked in the actual docking bay, having your ship automatically taken over so you could actually watch the adverts going past you on the the entrance screen. Uh, Do we want it to be absolutely seamless or, or would we actually quite like to hand over controls once we've docked? I think you've misunderstood the question. Will there be intrusive loading screens when docking with space stations? Yeah, I think what he's talking about is when you go into a space station, you get like a static image of a guy sitting at a bar and a little progress bar that shows the inside of the space station loading. Really? Because we've never had that. So I don't think no, it's going to be... I think the problem is that because this game is you know new and it's going to be cutting edge... You know, if they're going to load, if they're going to get the maximum out of the space engine, then the usual way to do that is to load loads of stuff into memory, and then if you change from outer space and flying ship mode into a menu system, then it might they may be tempted to shuttle stuff in and out of memory, and 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 that would require loading screens and things like that, because you can't have the whole game and all of the textures on the video card at the same time. There has to be some sort of time when things are getting moved back and forth. Now, there's been a lot of success lately, and I'm, I'm thinking of things like GTA 4, where there's no load. Once the game's running, there's no there's no loading screen because it's the game's designed in such a way that everything is piped through as you need it. And I think that's what they're going to be aiming to do, rather than the simplistic method, which is you know as soon as you're changing location, you've got a loading screen. So I think that's what they said when there's not loading screens. And in fact, there's an animation within the newsletter showing ships landing and then getting moved around and then moved to a different compartment. And that is actually going to feature as part of the game. Yeah, but I think there's been a bit of uh, confusion. We'll talk about it when we get to the newsletter. But that um, particular animation, I believe, is only being used when people log off the server. So when you see another player disappear, their ship will actually vanish and be stored. And it's that animation that they're demonstrating there as opposed to just your normal docking animation. When you're actually online, your ship stays where it is. Oh, right, okay, that was my misunderstanding. But, but as far as the, the, they said a loading screen, and, and that's what I'm, I think me and, me and Chris kind <laughs> of agree that that's what he's referring to. I think you will still see your ship going in, and then, yeah, you'll, it'll spin you around and chuck you somewhere, and then all of a sudden you'll be in the, in the menu. Um, but I don't think there's going to be a loading screen. Because as you Great said, stuff. it'd be a step back because Frontier didn't have any loading screens. 
The next question from Mike Snoss. Uh, will the ranking system to gain elite status be expanded upon from the previous games? Uh, the answer is yes. The ranking system to elite status for combat will stay the same. So you have the same ranks, but how you get to those ranks uh, will change. So obviously we know that there's going to be different career paths and it's not all just going to be about shooting you know, shooting ships to gain to elite. But the actual pathway, the actual sort of elite status, assuming he means from mostly harmless up to elite, uh, those steps are going to stay the same. Is that what everybody else understood from it? Well, for a start, remember, Elite isn't a rank anymore. It's a, a club. But I think they're going to have to change something because, say, for instance, you're a miner and you're going to be leveling up to the Elite club by mining, say, or trading. Well, what sense is it to say that you're now dangerous? You're a dangerous miner or you're a dangerous <laughs> trader? It doesn't make any sense. You know, elite, yeah. elite is generic. You can be elite at anything, but you can't be a dangerous miner unless, I don't know, you're like some that crazy guy out of Armageddon who goes nuts on the, on the asteroid service or something. So, yeah, I think that needs looking at. And I was thinking about the way that you get to elite in these other um, roles. And we've talked previously about um, this, this business of achievements and whether or not Elite will have achievements in the way that a lot of games have kind of achievements and trophies. And one of the things that suddenly occurred to me is that for a role like uh, Miner, obviously with the Elite status for combat, it's kind of based on number of kills. But what if, rather than it being based on the number of kills, it was based on you hitting certain milestones in your ability to kill stuff? So, for example, in order to get to Dangerous you have to single-handedly take down an asp or something like that. So like with the miner, rather than it just being that for one rank you've, you've shipped 50 tonnes and for the next rank you've shipped 500 tonnes, what if, in order to get to the next level of being a miner, you have to transport a certain amount of tonnage in a single trade run? And actually that makes the barriers for entry into each of the tiers very different and much closer to an achievement-based process rather than just kind of a score, if you, if you see what I'm saying. Yeah, but I like the idea of achievements. I actually want, you know, if I do something crazy like, I don't know, reverse park into a space station, I want to get the reverse parking achievement. Sado. <laughs> I know achievements aren't everyone's cup of tea, but I'm sure, Chris, you want to reverse park and get that achievement. Absolutely. One of my favourite uh, trophies in a game, there's a racing game where there's a trophy for reversing over the finish line, but still coming first. <laughs> so you, you have to have driven well enough to showboat and back across the finish line and you know trophies like that i think are amazing so yeah no i'm one with john on this i think that there'll be all kinds of uh nice stuff that you could do with achievements i think they're great yeah i still think you're both very very sad achievement halls <laughs> and of well, course um, the tea cutting uh, achievement well i knew the tea cutting <laughs> thing would have to be in there you have managed to buy and sell a ship without losing any percentage marks on the sale. You must be the tea cutter. Uh, I was just going to say I agree with I agree with Foz. I'm not a yeah. big fan of achievements. I just think it takes away from what you're actually trying to do in the game. Like just play the game. With a game like Elite, I don't think it's important. Well, I don't think it's important, but it's like an icing on the cake. It's like a meta game, and it's also good. Because it's another thing you can share with your friends. And if, if there is going to be this kind of social game to it, and if you're able to, say, log in from the website or, you know, compare your 
achievement. It'd be great to compare your achievements to your friends. And then, you know, like they've got this really bizarre achievement that's really difficult to, to get. And you can ask and you say, oh, how did you get that? You know, and it's a story in itself. And it's something that, you know, if you've got this comprehensive game engine that they must be planning to, to, to do all the stuff that they're promising, you know, it'd be quite easy. Well, not easy. Nothing's easy if you're a developer. I understand that. But it, it's not as difficult as a lot of other programming tasks to build in an achievement system to capture some quite magical moments in the game and to actually reward people for that. I actually, to be honest, with the achievements and trophies system on the PS3 and, and, and Xbox, uh, and to a slightly lesser extent, Steam, trophy system and the achievement system are game independent so i can see i can go on my friends list and i can see what trophies a friend has got for a game that i've never even had on my system and for me that's the strength of it and i actually think it's quite a nice marketing tool you know if you're if we're talking about trying to get elite out there and appealing to people if you've got some kind of online profile that's flashing up with little things that you've done playing elite other people are going to see your profile and they're going to see the kind of things that you can do within this game and it becomes a marketing platform because people look at the trophies and think that sounds like a really fun thing to do. Yeah, and if, it's get, if every time you unlock a, a trophy it's getting posted to Facebook, then, you know, that's what everyone else oh, is doing. If, <laughs> if, if, if that's the case, I'm defriending you both straight away. <laughs> well, I can see that point. I mean, it's, it's a good thing for a marketing tool, but I don't see why it should break the immersion in the game. I mean, Mark, one thing I did think about sort of while you were talking there was why not, instead of making it achievements, why not make it awards? So that instead of having, you've got this award for reversing into space dock or something like that, you've got, um, say, you've you've got the diesel helped us out of a famine award and that kind of thing. So you've you've got like a medal or you've got a certificate or you've got something from a, a planet that is like a thank you, and or you can trophy. see that on some or a trophy. Even even a trophy for winning a race or something like that. Well, I, and I think I mean we discussed achievements way back. It's like I think in like one of the first podcasts, and you know for those people that are violently against you know some of the more gimmicky ones, then you know you can still have achievements in the game. You just need to kind of you know build them into the game and make them a bit a little bit more um, immersive. So for instance, you wouldn't reward someone for reversing into a space station without you know touching the sides, but there's no reason why you couldn't reward milestones and you know kind of write some kind of law around it you know so if you're a real humanitarian you get a letter from a queen somewhere or something like that but you know build it into the game so it's not so as you said as dave says breaking the immersion yeah i think the other thing they should build into the game is an off switch for achievements so that those people like myself and Dave who don't really want to be bothered with it uh, don't really need to take part if we don't want to. If we want to be grumpy old men, we can just be grumpy old men oh. and switch it off. So like, it's like an off button for PvP, is it? Oh, don't start. <laughs> Do you not start. We're going to talk about the PvP debate in uh, in the community corner section. Oh, so really? Oh, just... Are we really? Oh. <laughs> let's just park it for the time being until we get there. One of the conversations I seem to remember having amongst the sort of writer's Bible group, which I'm not, it's not written down anywhere, so I don't think I'm breaking any confidentiality here, was that the elite ranking system is only used in certain circumstances. I don't think it's specifically used for other careers. Like, if you're a, if you're a combat pilot, then you'll have an elite, an elite ranking in the elite federation. But it also has, there's also a separate record of your other achievements and your other abilities in other areas of career. Like, if you're a, if you're a half-decent trader, then you will get recognition and promotion from that. But I'm not entirely sure if it's going to climb up the elite ranking ladder in the same way. 
the next question I thought was interesting from the dev diary was uh, from Mark Jones. Uh, will we be able to name our ships? David Braben says, yes, you will. Uh, but as for how much relevance it has uh, is a different matter. Uh, certainly by changing the name of your ship, you're not going to be able to get rid of any fines or bounties or ratings that go along with your ship. But it was such a popular request that it's something they have incorporated into the game. Guys, what do you think? I mean, is this just something where you can have biggest dickers 69 flying around the galaxy? Or is there a proper reason or a, a useful reason for having a, a ship name? Does it you know, create an extra special bond between you and your ASP? Your ship's a character. Your ship's your, like part of your character in the game. It always has been. I mean, look at how many people have got Cobra Mark III models and Cobra Mark III's stuck to things. And, you know, everyone loves the ships in Elite and everyone wants to give them a bit of a personality. I mean, I never felt the the burning desire to name my Cobra Mark III other thing other than you know my Cobra Mark III designation DH seven six nine two four. You know, I was never that. That's my initials that, and serial number. How did you manage to get that? <laughs> <laughs> I was never that attached to any particular one ship apart from the ship I was flying at any particular time. But I certainly didn't have any burning desire to name it. I did. I named mine. Every single one of mine I named. Even after I destroyed them and got a new one, they got a name. Did they Sorry. get the same name? Um, they got a, a number of iterations of the same name, or they got different <laughs> names depending on what sort of ship they were. Right. Okay. I, I can understand your your kind of reluctance, Fazer, because if you think about it, if you're progressing at a fair speed through the game, I mean, how long are you actually going to hold on to any particular ship? You know, I mean, is it really worth naming them? If you're a trader, you're going to be quite businesslike. All you're going to be doing is looking to upgrade as soon as possible, so you've got more space. If you're a pirate, you're going to get destroyed a lot, maybe. So what's the point? I think people like to customize their stuff, and you know this is you know maybe a feature of the game customizing of ships. Um, it's certainly a feature that can attract the more casual gamer because a lot of people like doing that kind of thing. So, and the naming is a very easy one for the programming team to implement. But then again, it could be an immersion breaker, as you alluded to. I mean, are we going to be flying around? There's going to be like three thousand red dwarves, and mm. you know um, some. Git turns up in the Nebuchadnezzar. I, I, <laughs> I don't know. If you can spell it, that's an achievement. <laughs> yeah. Well, a, you I'm unlocked the Nebuchadnezzar here. achievement. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm just thinking here, actually. I'm, uh, I'm making a liar out of myself because on uh, EVE Online, I did actually name my ships. However, in EVE Online, I named all of my ships uh, elite ships. So I'd have a ship and I'd call it my Cobra Mark III, or I'd call it my Anaconda, or I'd call it my Third Lance. I'm not sure how well that's going to transfer into the actual elite universe. That's, that's too far, Foz. That's, that's just really sad. Yeah, all those players must have thought you were a right tet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you were breaking their immersion. That's it, yeah. I think of it in this way, like, I always gone a bit immersion and so on with this game, and it's been a big part of my elite experience has been immersion with this game because it's been part of my life since I was what, twelve, something like that. And in a very real way, I look at this game as being what if it is real life? And the, the ships in the game are in a very big way your house because it's where you live, it's where you live, it's where you work, and you take it with you when you go different places. If you read between the lines of a lot of the way that the stations are designed, then you actually live in your ship when you're docked as well because it has all the accommodation things in it. So you are going to grow an attachment to it if you were a real pilot in the 32nd century. You are going to grow an attachment to it. You are going to want to take care of it, and you are going to want to give it a name. Okay, so we'll leave the dev diary there and move straight on to the, uh, this week's newsletter. 
Okay, so going on to the newsletter this week. Uh, the first thing coming out of the newsletter is the the interesting animation that Frontier have created for um, what happens when you actually take your ship offline. So when you unplug yourself from the dangerous universe, rather than just your ship just vanish in front of another player's eyes, they've established quite a cool little animation for your ship actually being mechanically dropped down into the space station, span around and turned away to be safely stored. What do you guys think of this in terms of the you know, the realism aspect of it and uh, you know, just the first sort of gritty mechanics that we've seen from the Elite Universe? It's, it's nice and gritty, you know, it's not too over the top. Um, I kind of like the basic, you know, the ship just drops down and then it's like it's like the car factories that we have now. I mean, I don't know if you've seen any of them. I was watching a documentary the other day. I think it was Volkswagen. They got basically a massive, like, uh, it's a cylinder of a building with loads of levels. And so when the car gets it gets driven into the middle, the platform will raise up through the middle of the, the, the building and then turn and then park it. So it's like an ultra-compact, multi-storey car park. And that's kind of what I see in this, that we're going to have you know, the ships just stored that way. And yeah, so I think it fits in nicely with the Elite Universe. But the, the big question is, is that Panther Clipper or what? Ah, well, I was just <laughs> going to say that. Does that look like the first outing we've seen of the, uh, the legendary Panther Clipper? And if so... Yeah, obviously we we haven't got anything to base the scale on, but in previous games that was the you know, the biggest ship in game. It doesn't quite look like the same sort of size uh, as I'd be expecting on this one. Well, as you said, it's hard to tell because of the scale. I mean, what would have been handy if they'd put a little man next to it? Well, is that is that a ladder going up the side of the uh, the sort of docking bay, or is that just a, a sort of is that the cog track for the uh, motor? Yeah, I think that's the cog, the cog track. track. Okay. Yeah. How but about no, the little does... red things on the top deck? Are they? Uh, what do you reckon? Are they greenhouse, like Anderson shelter size things? <laughs> maybe they're actually hangers for smaller ships. Yeah, could maybe you could actually fit a Cobra Mark III into one of those, uh, and that would uh, that would make the ship quite, uh, yeah, probably about the right sort of size. Anyway, time will tell. I'm sure they'll uh, make an announcement, but it does look very similar to a Panther Clipper. The thing I'm confused about is it does say in the text what will happen when you go offline, but. Presumably, I mean, again, getting ahead of ourselves and talking about getting out of your ship and walking around the station. You know, where does that happen? Because I I kind of imagined in my head that if you were going to get out of your ship, your ship would need to be moved into a kind of pressurised bay. Otherwise, you're going to need some sort of docking tunnel or you're going to have to walk around in a spacesuit into an airlock, which seems a bit unwieldy. This was actually discussed on the writers' forum at one point as to how you get in and out of your ship in a docking bay. The majority of the stations... Um, are unpressurized and you would indeed have to get out of your ship in an eva suit and there's a bit of the there's one of the concept art that's set inside a docking bay which kind of half shows you that yeah because it would be kind of like um it'd be a waste of energy to have to you know once you've docked like that all of a sudden have to flood the entire docking area with oxygen just so you can step off your ship top gun style it's it's a big space isn't it it's <laughs> yeah. a big space to have to to have to pressurize you know, I mean, I, but then again, I always went the other way. I always thought that you'd there would be like a tube that would come to the hatch, so that you just open your ship door, and then you would be running, you know, walking down a tube, and then you'd be on the space station. You wouldn't necessarily see this massive docking area. And I mean, this animation is quite empty. You'd imagine there'd have to be some kind of mechanism that could open the cargo bay and load it with stuff, and and that would probably take up a lot of room and you wouldn't necessarily want to expose humans to that kind of stuff going on Mm. 
Yeah, it'll be interesting. And time will tell whether or not that's going to be the uh, the Panther Clipper that we see in game. I'm sure there'll be some more concept art coming out for that quite soon. Uh, the next section of the newsletter discussed the expansion of the Imperial Fleet. Obviously, we've seen the cruisers, the battle cruisers, um, in a lot of the the concept arts. But uh, Frontier Development are talking about expanding, you know, to have a few more ships of the line. Now, Dave, I think this is an area of interest to you, so maybe you can take us through it. The number of ships that's on there and the number of different types of ship on there is phenomenal. And I think as well as having the 25 player ships, they're going to have all these different background ships that are going to be in the background all the time and floating over planets and floating around space stations and so on. So it's going to be a huge game, a huge load of scenery, scenery-tastic. But I think what worries me is the fact that if they're going to have that many different types of ship for each different faction, they're going to be coding this thing for about two years. <laughs> I'm designing a ship for about two years. So are they going to meet the March date just because with these, or uh, have they got most of these done already, perhaps? But, yeah. And I think perhaps now we're seeing, you know, maybe the real reason for uh, holding off on things like getting out and walking around until a later mm-hmm. release. Because, as you say, there's there's a different amount of work that goes into producing a playable ship as a model, you know, from the outside and actually building all the interiors. And I think that's perhaps where... You know, it comes unstuck. It's perhaps not a technology issue to do with being able to physically have an engine you can walk around. And maybe it's about saying, you know, we just need a bit more time to make these interiors. I can see what you're saying, but I would imagine some of these ships are going to be you know, inaccessible to, to us. I mean, there's no reason why, if we can walk around on the cruisers, which they're calling, you know, obviously the battle cruisers, the battleships and the indictors and stuff, um, then they've got the next level down, the frigates, then the destroyers, the carriers, the transporters, and then the corvettes, fighters, all the way down to your automated drones. Now, I don't see why you need to worry about doing the interiors for things like frigates, destroyers and carriers, because you can just literally just say that they are going to be you know, inaccessible to you know, Joe Bloggs. Uh, the general public, and just have those as you know, military ships, and only the the larger ones have um, you know, public access or general access. So you could still have these, but just have them as eye candy in the background. Well, the largest ones, essentially, we've already talked about them having a similar role as space stations. So the ability to walk around a space station and the ability to walk around a battle cruiser is going to be largely similar except obviously for the design. The impression I'd got when they were talking about walking around ships is the ability to see the interior of things like, you know, the couriers and fighter class. I know it's not much of a walk around. In a fighter, you're talking about making the short trip between, you know, the cockpit, the cargo bay, the bedroom and the toilet. Um, (laughs) But, you know, nevertheless, those are interiors that need a certain amount of detail. You've also, got to, you've also got to think about the aesthetic of each of these interiors as well, for each different faction. Like is, a, is an Imperial design ship going to have a completely different design concept than a Federation ship, for example? Exactly. Yeah, I should certainly imagine it's going to be a little bit more ornate. One of the things that has been discussed on podcasts and conclaves that I haven't actually at any point weighed in on is this issue of whether the game will be late. And I think that's where you, you know, people are talking about whether or not Elite will be delivered on time. One of the things that Frontier Developments are very good at is this technology that they talk about, um, about procedural generation. And I think if they can get their basic engine down and they can get the stuff in place to procedurally generate planets and star systems, there's no reason why it wouldn't be on time. But when you get into talking about interiors of ships and interiors of space stations and lots of stuff that they have to actually make with artists, that's when you're talking about a bigger timescale being needed. Okay, well, 
talking about artists, the next section of the newsletter has a couple of images from uh, a new ship design that we haven't seen before, but that some people are talking about maybe our first glance at the new Imperial Courier. Certainly it bears a, a striking resemblance to the both the Imperial Trader and the Imperial Tr- Courier from the from the Frontier Games. What do you guys what do you guys reckon? I think it definitely is the Imperial Courier, because if you click on the image, the link says Imperial Courier Sketches. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say that. I'm going to go out on the <laughs> Yeah, well spotted, Chris. Yes, if you click on it and go through to the actual uh, hosting site, it does say Imperial Courier in the title. Nobody, so can, say, that nobody can say, right, that we don't do our research. <laughs> <laughs> So if we just back up there, so look, guys, we've got an image of the new Imperial Courier concept art. No, we should keep that in. That was quality <laughs> Oh, okay. So it looks like we've got a, a picture of the Imperial Courier, um, which is blatantly obvious. Even if you didn't see the title, uh, if you click through to it, it, it does look very, very, uh, very, very similar to the the Frontier one of, uh, of the past. Um, but I am liking it. It does look very, very badass. I'm actually. I don't like it. I'm disappointed. Really? I like the main hull. I like the main hull, but I think the engines look rubbish. You see, now I'm the opposite. I like the engines. I don't like the hull. <laughs> <laughs> I think the engines look A perfect look like example guns. of how you can't please everybody all the time. <laughs> Scrap it. Sorry, is there going to be ro- rotating stuff on it? You've got to have rotating bits. It doesn't look like it, does it? No. Come on, back to the drawing board, guys. Come on. <laughs> yeah, must try harder. Okay, so it's a thumbs down on the first picture of the Imperial Courier. And the thing is, my opinion counts because, and I think Chris Jarvis's does, because we've said all along, you know, the Imperial Courier and traders, we were looking forward to seeing them. And so, you know, if there's one thing, you know, I tell you what, just cancel the landing on planets thing. Just get this right, okay? (laughs) (laughs) I just want to point out as well that I, I designed the Imperial Courier for Uli. So if there's any jobs going to design a new Imperial Courier, if anybody at Frontier is listening, I'm quite happy to take your phone call. This is now turned into the, the, the self-promo show. <laughs> I'm making the most of my guest spot. <laughs> See, I'm, I'm disappointed for a slightly different reason, because obviously, I've talk, you know, like John says, I've talked from the beginning about the Imperial Courier being my favourite. And the reason the Courier and the Trader were my favourites were because they reminded me of the <laughs> ship from Blake 7. And now this looks that much Nothing. less like the ship from Blake 7. Um, I can't make that leap anymore. So, yeah, more more cheesy 80s uh, BBC sci-fi needed, mm-hmm. I think. In fact, if they don't fix it, I'm going to pull my I'm going to pull my pledge. Yeah. Oh god. Every time you threat that. <laughs> it's too late. Moving on to another section of the newsletter, the uh, the new section, Com Chatter, uh, happenings within the community of uh, Elite Dangerous, which obviously we're quite interested in because uh, Lave Radio is first and foremost a community project. So um, some of the aspects that they picked out to talk about the recently created astronomy section of the official Frontier forums, that has been ridiculously busy. I was quite surprised at how popular that became very, very um, you know, straight away off the bat. Have you guys had a look in there, seen the stuff that's going on? I've had a brief look, but um, I've been quite busy. I'll probably dive into it next week. I have to admit, it goes so much over my head. I am someone who still looks at gravity and thinks, yeah, I'm really not convinced by gravity. What, you mean, uh, what, it's think... not real or it's just an illusion? <laughs> it just, just doesn't, seem, doesn't seem to make any sense to me. Um, <laughs> again, so, man and God. So possibly the astronomy section is going to go way over my head. <laughs> I'm just quite tickled by the thought of you standing there looking at gravity, actually. <laughs> <laughs> 
just that well-known visible force. <laughs> it bothers me. You have these two objects with mass, and they're attracted to each other. How? Anyway, do you have the same problem with electrons and protons? No, I get those. Those make sense. <laughs> That's okay then. <laughs> I think if somebody can, if somebody can discover like a gravity particle. I'll be a happy man. Well, you, you, what you want is a positive gravity and a negative gravity particle, and then, you, you know, you can cope with that. Exactly. Right, okay. Exactly. <laughs> the gravity particle is called the graviton, by the way, if it does exist. In, in Star Trek, it does, yeah, absolutely. No, no, that, that would be the, technic- that would be the that term would, they would it? use if it did exist. Yeah, yeah, yeah they've already, it's been speculated already. Yeah, yeah, okay. <laughs> Ever feel that we might be going slightly off topic? Yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> okay, back to the community section. Dave, what else has been in the community section? Well, Frontier have actually given a shout-out to a community member, Dobrimish, who made a fantastic timeline plot on all of the updates since the start of the Kickstarter. He's been working on the Kickstarter as well to translate everything, and he's done a load of work on that, and he's a fantastic bloke. If you're a Russian-speaking fan, then head over to his Russian community thread for all the updates so far in your native language. It's great. I mean, I didn't realise that there was such a Russian uh, following for the elite. Uh, franchise, but uh, yeah, oh, the more huge. and more that we've done this, the you know, the more it's become evident that yeah, the front the uh, the the Russian following is absolutely massive for the game. Oh, it's immense. I mean, even Elite's got a massive following in Russia for it. But, yeah. Okay. Well, the final section of the community, uh, the com chatter section of the newsletter is uh, LaveCon, which obviously <laughs> is something that's very dear to our hearts, as we're going to be the ones that are hopefully trying to put it together. Just to let people know, the LaveCon event, which is taking place in Cheltenham on the 29th of June. All the tickets have now gone for that, uh, so there's no more tickets available. Uh, what we would like to say is, if you have taken a ticket, and for whatever reason you know you're not going to be able to attend, if you wouldn't mind either getting in touch with us at info at laveradio.com, or just going onto the Eventbrite website and releasing that ticket, it just allows a few other people to, to come. And if you are one of the people that have been disappointed and can't get a ticket, uh, if you'd like to email your details to us and what we will do is we will put you on a reserve list. So if any more tickets become available, we'll let you know straight away. Uh, John, anything to add, seeing as you're sort of taking the steerage for this? Lavecon's going to be awesome. So many ideas to make it great that they're not all going to make it in. There's certain things that I just wish I could shout at people and let them know it's going to happen, but, you know, we're trying to keep it a secret, so I'll just have to stay frustrated for a while. Oh, this is the last podcast. The next one we record will be at Lavecon. Um, unless something amazing happens, like they release a demo <laughs> <laughs> of Elite Dangerous for us to play, and then I would probably just... You know, we we would do an emergency broadcast, but that's that's not going to happen. <laughs> You'll just have to cope with the new um, the new episode of Escape Velocity. And finally, this week in the uh, newsletter, the Elite Fiction Drabble this week entitled "Empty," written by Ramon Maret. Empty by Ramon Maret. Space. It used to be so small, jumping from one system to another in the blink of an eye, just popping over to the star and back for fuel, or talking to friends billions of miles away. Space was so small, but now... I sit, staring out at an endless expanse of black. I've been staring for years, no planets, no ships, no contact with anyone. Just floating in this broken down piece of junk they call an escape pod. 
space used to be small. Who am I kidding? Space was never small. It is massive. And it is lonely. Okay, this week in the Community Corner, we're going to start straight away with the wonderful Mr. Dave Hughes. Dave, tell us what's going on in the Writers Forum. Well, Chris, not much this week, actually. Um, primarily probably because Alan's not around. The only real conversation that's been going on there is, believe it or not, how to go to the toilet in Elite Dangerous. Seriously? Um, seriously. <laughs> I'm not kidding here at all. Uh, T. James asked how, um, with Witness now being decided whether or not there was anyone that wanted to go into nitty-gritty of on-ship living and even loving. And um, there was people talking about different ways that we could go to the toilet and different ways there was hygiene things being done on there. And uh, Michael Brooks himself pointed out there could be the three seashells which if anyone gets that reference, I'll be quite impressed. <laughs> but other than that, there's not really been all that much in there. I think everyone's just getting their head down and getting things written at the moment. So, yeah, there's not been a lot going on, but we have been talking about LaveCon a fair bit. Okay, so yeah, at LaveCon, um, writers are featuring quite heavily. I've been really impressed with the number of writers that want to take part and give up some of their time to you know, help us entertain the people that are coming along. We're going to have two separate writer Q&A sessions, such as the quality and quantity of the writers that we have. It's still to be finalised, but just to name a few names, we have our very own Dave Hughes, our very own Alan Stroud, Darren Gray, Michael Brooks is going to be on hand to maybe answer some kind of generic fiction questions we're also going to have obviously drew and kate russell's going to be there and lynn chen great stuff so we'll go on to some listener questions uh would you join a player clan in the lead dangerous either for trade or just for added protection now it sounds very much that chris you'll be interested in hiring a group of escorts would you also sort of take that to the next stage and have a yeah i'm always interested in hiring a group of escorts <laughs> 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 would you group or nothing as far as i'm concerned <laughs> would you be prepared to uh, to join a guild that offered you sort of mutual protection for a share of your profits etc yes and no I, I think if there's if there's gameplay options that come out of joining a group you know joining a guild or whatever then you know then it, then it might be something i'd go I'd, it might be a route that i'd go down i think i'm more interested in groups from a social perspective you know, a lot of the game gaming stuff that I'm involved in now is, is really kind of based around gaming together with a group of people that you kind of get on with. And, and, and however that gaming together manifests, whether it's, whether it's in Elite kind of, you know, joining up and playing cooperatively um, or whether it's just having that kind of social space in game to just kind of be a bit chatty while you're doing other things. I think that, that, that interests me more. OK, John, what about you? Yeah, I mean, I mean, they've said that there's not going to be clans in the kind of MMO sense, that, that there's this kind of alliance thing going on. But I would like to see it kind of shift towards the clan, not because you and your clan are going to go out in some major force to go and upset something. But when I played MMOs in the past, you know, one of the big features was the social aspect that, that um, Chris was just talking about. And, you know, if you log on and when you are playing, you, you have a chat window, which is, you know, you're in contact with all of your guild or your, your alliance buddies there. It acts as a kind of, you know, it's like a go-to place if you need help or whatever. You know, so if there's a mission um, and you need help or if you're a trader and you need an escort or, you know, if you're a bounty hunter and you need you need to hunt down a bigger target, you've got a pool of people that you can rely on, pe- people that you trust 
as well, because trust is going to be a very important part of this game. And this is meant to be a social game. David Braben sold it as a social game. That's the kind, you know, he's made a big deal of that. So I think it's only natural that that needs to be a feature that goes in. So I would most certainly be looking for a group. I mean, the first group I'm hopefully going to join is the Lave Radio group. But I got a feeling that maybe we're not all going to play as much as the the other uh, other people and so we might have to expand it but no i definitely want to be part of a group um, of people who are always on hand to help out i think it would depend on the on the people in the group more than anything else i've never been a big fan of multiplayer games when i played everquest and dark age of camelot there came a point in those games where you had to join some kind of group um, in order to get any further i resented that in a way because i didn't want to play with just the first bunch of people that came along elite dangerous has got the the system for groups anyway and I think, as I say, I think it would depend on the people. If there was a, a group of people that was that I could get on with that I knew personally or that were suited to my type of play, then yes, I'd quite happily join that and join in them as long as it was on my terms. And I wasn't expected to be there every night or every week or anything like that because I can't commit to that kind of thing. And I think the, it would depend on what the purpose of that group was. I think if, if there was a group that was going to say, right, we are naval reservists, then I would quite happily join that. Um, I was going to say, are you interested in it from a kind of role-playing perspective? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, a big part of original Elite was the fact that in, in my head, and I don't think it was Chronicle anywhere, it was something I think I made up on my own, was that any Galcott pilot was automatically part of the Galactic Navy as well, as a reserve. Um, and you could be called upon at any time to go and do little missions for them, which is where the, the Constrictor mission came in. And then in my head, that was me role-playing that aspect of it, so... So yeah, if there was a role-playing opportunity there, I definitely would. Well, that links on quite nicely to the uh, the next question that we've been sent in, which is what environmental factors would you like to see day one of the game? Would you like to see a relatively peaceful galaxy or would you prefer to be dropped in at the deep end with a potentially ongoing situation? So I know um, Frontier Developments have said that it's sort of a relatively, it's a time of relative peace and Cold War sort of set up between all the factions. Are we happy with that, or would we rather, you know, there was an all-out war going on that we could be dropped in and had to choose sides straight away? I think there should be different areas in the game where there's different things happening. I don't think it should be one particular thing for the whole galaxy. Like, if you wanted to say, I want to jump straight into a conflict situation, then there'll be a, there'll be a, a system or a, a region where that kind of thing is going on. There is a, an interdiction in, in progress, or there's a blockade in progress, and you can go and join in with that. But alternatively, there's also another opportunity somewhere else to do a trade run or to get involved with some kind of mercy mission or something like that. The option should be there at the start to do anything you really like. Yeah, I kind of agree with, with Dave, and, and I think there will be something on there. It'll be like kind of a micro situation. You might have a few neighbouring planets or neighbouring systems at war. In terms of like a more kind of pan-galactic situation... It would be nice to have the relative peace, which they're talking about. You know, in general, there's not a full-scale war going on. And then, obviously, there's going to be a reveal or something like that. There will be a... The Thargoids have now decided to redeclare war, and either they're going to kick off or maybe a new enemy or, you know, something like that. That's the great thing, is they're able to inject all these new events. So I'm looking forward to that. Okay, well, both those questions came in from Listery69, so thank you for sending those in. All that's left for us to do is give some shout-out to those people that have given us some feedback. iTunes this week came from Thalia NG. Thanks very much for taking the time. If uh, if you can just keep on giving us reviews on iTunes, guys. It does help us with our visibility on the main new and noteworthy for uh, the podcast, which just allows us to uh, get a little bit more traffic and a little bit more exposure for the Dangerous Universe. If you'd like to contact the show, you can at info at laveradio.com. On Twitter, at laveradio. You can search Facebook for Lave Radio. And if you want to call us on Skype and listen to our cheesy answering machine message, you can at lave.radio. 
Okay, well, that's going to do it for another episode. Thank you to John, Chris, and Dave, or especially Dave, for sitting in for Alan. We're going to power down the Sidewinder and see you next time. And welcome to this episode. Hello, bollocks! Straight off the bat. Good start. <laughs> okay, shall we go on to the development news, of which there's been quite a bit since the last show?
No. <laughs> I hate rhetorical questions. That wasn't a rhetorical question. That was a link. Right. We'll leave that there and go straight into the DDF. The first section this week of the DDF is traders. John, I believe you've been reading into this. Yes, I have. Let me just bring it up. <laughs> Seamless. As soon as you said traders, I was like, you bastard. It's at the top of the and... list. <laughs> oh, I know, I know. It's my fault. Okay. It is your fault. If you read the show notes, you didn't, you'd know what to expect-ish. No, I know, I know. <laughs> Apologies for being unprofessional. <laughs> okay, so um, next question was uh, from Mike Snoss. Uh, will the ranking system <laughs> to gain <laughs> elite... Are you going to say that again without laughing at his name? <laughs> The next question from Mike Snoss. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> it's going in the bloopers anyway. Uh, the ne- <laughs> um, okay, so the next question came from oh, uh, Mark. I've got a point I wanted to make. About the- <laughs> Stop cutting me off. He does do that sometimes. He- I know I'm just a pretend Alan, but Christ. Actually, you're, I tell you what, Dave, you're much better than Chris Jarvis. The number of times I've said to Fozzer, whoa, 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 I think Chris Jarvis has got something to say. And he says, no. <laughs> no, that was once. <laughs> I think it's twice. Mate. And John's never let you live it down, mate. No, that's it. I'm never going to hand over to Chris Jarvis ever again. <laughs> Sorry, go on, Dave. What's your point, mate? The next question I thought was interesting from the Dev Diary was uh, from Mark Jones. Will we be able to name our ships? And David Braben basically says that uh, it's not going to have much relevance. Uh, it's not going to have much relevance. It's not going to have much relevance. <laughs> sorry, in- sorry, sorry. <laughs> do it again. I'll start. I'll mute myself now. Oh, make him keep doing it. Yeah. <laughs> and finally, this week for the newsletter, the Elite Fiction Drabble. This week's entitled. Mm. Why do I always have so much of a problem actually getting the Drabble stuff announced? You've actually missed a bit of Foz. No, I haven't. <laughs> no, I haven't. We've, we've talked about it a lot. Oh, we talked about the multi-ownership thing? No, you've missed the um, writer's forum thing. Uh, uh, yeah, the whole, the whole, like, don't do like the, the writer's forum part of the community. Is that what you're talking about, Dave? Yeah, there's a thing in the in the itinerary for tonight at the the writers forum, but where Alan usually talks about the writers forum, what's going on in there? Yeah. Oh no, yeah, no, but we do the drabble. We do the drabble first. Oh. But you just said, and lastly, the drabble. Uh, lastly, for the, the news. newsletter. The Lies. drabble and the newsletter. Oh, I see. Right. <laughs> okay, you can tell I'm new. That's that's when you be moment finished now. <laughs> I'll go back to the standby chair. Uh, it's, it's it's fine, mate. It's just you really fucking confused me there. <laughs> <laughs> I was searching the newsletter for things like writers forum. It's like what? I was like, I have read this a couple of times. I can't remember anything about the writers forum being on here. Okay, and finally this week in the news. Sure, nobody else has got anything to say. I'm sorry. You're not going to invite me back, are you? <laughs> You will learn, Hughes, you will learn. I will. <laughs> I will. Absolutely. Um, and fuck. Fi- <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
Okay, moving on to Community Corner. We'll go straight up with the... No, we won't. We'll go straight up. Where are we going up? <laughs> I was going to say we're going to go straight up Dave there, but that's really bad. Um, <laughs> it's, an, it's, an, it's an initiation thing, isn't it? <laughs> no, we have no none of those weird initiation things. Don't panic. 